Hello, everyone, and welcome to the War on Palestine podcast. This is episode nine, recorded and published on December 3rd, 2023. I am one of the co-hosts, Noura Erekat, joined by Ziad Aburish and Bassam Haddad. We continue to offer this podcast as a digest of news that is happening on the ground, recognizing that for so many who are trying to follow this, the past few weeks and now again the past few days continue to be overwhelming in terms of keeping track of what's going on as well as the emotional toll. We want to offer this resource to consolidate and keep track of developments on multiple fronts, on the ground in Gaza and the rest of Palestine, at the United Nations and the diplomatic front, in the geostrategic sense, with geo grassroots activism, as well as the backlash to it across multiple geographies and the US media landscape. While the impetus for this program was the dramatic escalation of Israel's violence in the Gaza Strip, we want to emphasize, as we have individually done so elsewhere, that Israel's campaign against the Gaza Strip is not Gaza-specific. It is Palestine-specific. In the end, what is happening in the Gaza Strip today is an intensification of the decades of settler colonialism and apartheid practices of the Israeli state, even if by many accounts one of its most violent iterations ever. We are on day 58 of the current Israeli assault on the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip and beyond. Today is December 3rd, and it is the third day since the Israeli bombardment, ground invasion, and tightening of the siege has resumed on the Palestinian population of the Gaza Strip after a brief seven-day truce between November 24th and November 30th. For our listeners, it is worth remembering that the truce lasted about seven days, beginning on last Friday, November 24th, and broke down early Friday morning, December 3rd, with the resumption of the Israeli bombardment. During the truce, over 100 civilians were released from the Gaza Strip, including over 80 Israelis, 23 Thai, and one Filipino, in exchange for over 200 Palestinian prisoners all of them women and children. It is estimated that there are a remaining approximately 130 people as hostages and prisoners of war in Gaza, the vast majority of them Israelis and about 11 of them foreign national. Israel claims there are still 15 civilian women and two children in the Gaza Strip, but Hamas claims it has released all the women and children it was holding, as well as all the foreigners, and that the remaining hostages in its hands are all combatants or former combatants and thus prisoners of war. Um, it is important to remember that before the seven-day truce and the exchange of uh, hostages for Palestinian political prisoners, Hamas had released four civilian hostages. The Israeli military claimed it had retrieved one living Israeli soldier and three Israeli bodies from the Gaza Strip. Um, as listeners might be aware, uh, the issue of Palestinian prisoners is quite a major issue. Uh, and thus uh, a focal point of the negotiations between Hamas and Israel. Um, Noura, would you like to elaborate for us to try and better understand the significance of the Palestinian political prisoner population? Yeah, thank you, Ziad. I think it's important to emphasize what Palestinians themselves have shared multiple times over, which is, first, we need to understand these prisoners not as such, because prisoners indicates that somehow there was an indictment, there was due process, they were charged with something, 
Um, and instead to understand them more rightfully as hostages in this context where they are kidnapped, um, oftentimes um, children or parents when wanted children are not found as in an intimidation tactic it, to suppress Palestinians and their willingness uh, to participate in any form of resistance. We know that those who have been released um, right now, even in this prisoner exchange, that according to the New York Times, and this is not even citing our own numbers, but even according to the New York Times, that three-fourths of those who have been released, of the 240 that have been released from captivity, were not convicted of any crime, that they had been held in prison uh, for less than a year, and that 37 of them were arrested at the beginning of, of, of hostilities after October. October 7th, in a mass roundup of Palestinians, some 3,000 of them. We also know that Israel holds now some 7,000 Palestinians in captivity total. I would say the number between seven and 8,000 are held under in captivity. Approximately 2,000 of them are held under a derivative of British colonial law that was in place in, in the administration of the Palestine mandate which um, known as administrative detention, which stipulates that someone can be held without charge or trial for up to six months, renewable every six months. Now, this is martial law or military law that suspends a civilian law order that mandates due process, indictment, the assumption of innocence until proven guilty and, and so on, and in, instead supplants it with this exceptional legal regime of military law that uh, privileges the security of the belligerent state against the rights of the individuals. Oftentimes this is justified in an international legal framework under exceptional circumstances, but we need to remember that this state of exception has been permanent in the lives of Palestinians, that the martial law regime administered here was imposed on the Palestinians who remained within the newly established state between 1948 and 1966. And even though that martial regime was lifted in 1966, emergency rule still prevails, that now that martial law regime has been imposed on the Palestinians um, in the occupied territories since 1967. So given this framework, the other thing that we need to point out is that those Palestinians who have been released, those 240 Palestinians, have no guarantee that they won't be rearrested because of the continuing nature of this martial law regime, because of the continuing nature of an apartheid regime. We also know that 310 Palestinians, 70 more than have been released from captivity, have been arrested and brought into captivity during this time, which indicates for us that there's even in, in what we describe as an exchange of captives is also, you know, indicates false parity because Palestinians are released into a larger prison outside of, of their captivity where there's no guarantee that they won't be captured again. And so it's been a moment to be able to indicate that within a mainstream press that has a very short, you know, attention span. But for us, it's an opportunity to emphasize that it is not enough to achieve the release of all captives, but that you, we must end, right, the structural violence 
and these racist colonial regimes, which subject Palestinians to perpetual captivity. Absolutely, absolutely, Noura. And in fact, you know, one of uh, the analysis that is circulating on the breakdown of the truce, and of course, the truce was initially established for four days for a particular formula of women and child hostages being released by Hamas in exchange for Palestinian political prisoners. It was extended for three days on the original agreement that there would be a one-day extension for every 10 additional women and child hostages. Um, but after the seventh day, it was not extended in part because of a breakdown in negotiations as Hamas claimed that uh, um, uh, there were no more women and children to be giving up as part of this 10 people a day formula and uh, has indicated that it wanted to negotiate a bigger picture deal. Um, Israel insisted that unless there were women and children and 10 of them released that there would be no extension of the truce. And of course, here we are with the bombardment resuming as of Friday, December 1st. Um, therein, the widespread and indiscriminate bombardment of the Gaza Strip from air, land, and sea uh, uh, resumed along with ground operations. And of course, uh, listeners might be aware that several analysts assessed the intensification of bombardment of Khan Yunus in particular as preparing for the potential expansion of Israel's ground invasion into uh, south of Gaza City, uh, uh, where it had been uh, focusing on cutting off northern Gaza from the remainder of the Gaza Strip. In the first two days alone of the resumption of bombardment, Israel has killed at least 193 Palestinians and injured another 652 of them. Uh, the overwhelming majority of these Palestinian fatalities were reported in two particular incidents on December 2nd, the bombing and destruction of a six-story building in Jabalia refugee camp, uh, and the bombing and destruction of an entire block in a Shuja'iya neighborhood in Gaza City. Um, as, as listeners might be aware, the total death toll of Palestinians has exceeded 15,000. At this point, the the total uh, injured population has exceeded 34,000. Um, the ability to count has been severely compromised since the collapse of the medical system and the hospital system in Gaza in general, but in northern Gaza in particular. And this is why now the uh, reporting of the casualties in Gaza Strip has moved from the Ministry of Health that is no longer able to take lead on this to the Gaza government media office. Um, but yet we do know that of those over 15,000 Palestinians killed, there are over 6,000 children and more than 4,000 women. And this is not even counting the thousands and thousands of people who are missing and presumed dead beneath the rubble. Noura, I know you've been uh, you know, tracking uh, uh, kind of Israeli policies and practices historically, but in particular since October 7th. I was wondering if you can help us make sense as we're continuing to try and make sense of the kind of large scale destruction. And of course, we've said on previous episodes that this is not a war against Hamas, that this is a war on the Palestinian people for a variety of reasons. But how, how do we make sense of, of, of this kind of wanton destruction that many people thought would not resume given its level? But what we've seen, it has precisely done that. Israel has resumed this ferocious assault. 
Yeah. Um, Ziad, it's really, it's not that we didn't expect the resumption at all. It remains mind boggling the way that the resumption of hostilities has actually been um, responded to with an, uh, uh, a disturbing casualness and matter of factness by diplomatic capitals and mainstream media. That after eight weeks of indiscriminate bombardment, several petitions to the ICC that have alleged genocide, a panel of 36 UN experts that have said this is genocide, a letter by over 750 scholars that have said this is genocide and genocidal that and you know revealing that there was no command and control center as they told us beneath al shifa hospital which gutted the largest you know hospital in um gaza served with 11,000 uh square feet uh and yet um to, and then the atrocities that we've seen now an other image of premature babies that were found rotting uh, who were abandoned after Israel forced um, the staff and the nurses to evacuate and yet silence nothing not even a question to Israeli propagandists who are invited systematically onto news programs well what about these babies no one has described them as barbaric no one has even brought them up, right? So this is the part that's really, really mind-boggling. How is it that if in the beginning of, you know, after October 7th, there was a tremendous amount of unknowns, a, a tremendous amount of anti-Palestinian hysteria that mobilized a war machine against which it was very hard to respond to. But in after eight weeks, we have the capacity to respond, right? There's been a lot revealed about what happened and didn't on October 7th. There's been a lot revealed about is, uh, Israeli propaganda and talking points that should empower a media core to be far more scrutinizing and effective, and yet they fail to do so. So here is it yet, and as you mentioned, Ziad, another opportunity for us to revisit um, just the, the, the laws of war and what's happening. For those of us who have gone beyond, right, beyond just um, following this, the, the minutia of, of these attacks, but also studying it on a broader scale, um, we, can see, we can see devastating patterns and precedents being set. So one of the things that you mentioned is how is it that we can explain these large number of, 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 of casualties, right? And it's not merely that this is a, you know, this is just a matter of impact, that the intention, what, you know, that this was disparate impact that, you know, meted out these results, but this is actually quite intentional. Um, Yuval Abra um, Abraham in Plus 972 magazine in, you know, in what we can say is probably um, the most effective um, investigation to date on what's happening on the ground, Plus 972 together with local call has demonstrated for us that the Israeli military has expanded, deliberately expanded authorization for the bombing of non-military targets, has loosened the constraints regarding expected civilian casualties, has used AI systems to generate more potential targets than ever before, which have contributed to the destructive nature of the initial stages of Israel's current war on the Gaza Strip. The Israeli army, as a matter of practice and its rules of engagement, have defined four targets according to this investigation. One is tactical targets, which are very standard 
um, in, you know, in hostilities, which is military targets like militant cells, weapons warehouses, um, and military headquarters. The second is underground targets, also somewhat commonplace, which are tunnels that Hamas may have dug under um, Gaza's neighborhoods. This is according to the Israeli army. Now, the third and the fourth are, are the two that should be of greatest concern. And these are power, number three, power targets which include high rises and residential towers in the heart of city and public buildings, such as universities, banks, and government offices. And the fourth is family homes and operative homes, the stated purpose of which of those attacks is to attack the private residences of perhaps a single member of Hamas who's, or even suspected member of Hamas or Islamic Jihad. I wanna focus on number three and four a little bit as a matter of what this means in, in law and what we know historically. So first of all, I just wanna say that in law, right? That we have seen the shifts to what culminates in the articulation of power targets and the explicit attack on family homes and operative homes. We have seen this shift and I've detailed this in my own work since early um, the early stages of the second what's known as the Second Palestinian Intifada, where Israel shifts from occupation to warfare against uh, Palestinians, where it indicates that where it has withdrawn from the territories it has withdrawn, it no longer has the same authority as it did where it is under a complete occupation. And here they're referring to areas A that they retreated from so that they can remain an occupying power in the rest of the territory, but in area A now under complete Palestinian civil and security authority, it no longer has the same legal obligations, thus giving it the right to use military force where they are actually limited in using law enforcement power. Okay, so here we see that initial logic shift where they tell us that um, this is neither um, an international armed conflict recognizing a nascent sovereign and thus governed by laws of war, nor is it a civil war that would be regulated by the second additional pro, uh, um, protocol, nor is it even a riot where they can respond to with law enforcement power as well. Instead, they respond to it. Instead, they respond to it um, by creating a new category known as armed conflict short of war that you know fits within the war on terror and the US's broader war on terror that allows it that affords it the right to use military lethal force against whom they describe as terrorists who do not have any legal right to fight back right so it's it's collapsing the terrorist framework which doesn't recognize them uh you know anybody that's fighting against um uh, an apartheid regime or an occupier as a nascent sovereign. It's collapsing them, describing them all as criminals, right? Together with now a framework of, 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 of military, of, of using a, mili a military response. Anyways, there's a legacy to this. We can discuss it. It's part of the broader war on terror and it's legal and, and military technologies. But fast forward to 2005, where this logic that was used in areas A to describe, right, this new juridical regime is expanded to apply to the entirety of Gaza, 
where Israel withdraws from known um, where they basically use that same logic used on area A in, in the West Bank to apply to the entire Gaza Strip and say that they are no longer an occupying power, but that the Palestinians are not independent. So it's neither occupied nor is it sovereign. Instead, Israel creates a category of hostile entity. In this situation, Israel now, you know, continues to use its logics of an unprecedented confrontation for which no laws of war can apply, given Israel the right to create new law, to innovate new laws of war, where they insist no previous laws can actually adequately apply. So we see that culminate in 2008 and 2009 during Israel's first operation against first large-scale offensive against Gaza and in um, Operation Cast Lead. And we see a steady development of these technologies in 2012, 2014, 2018, 2021, right? Um, and part of these technologies was restructuring proportionality and doing what I described as such as shrinking who counts as a Palestinian civilian um, so that Palestinians no longer, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip are no longer recognized as civilians as early as 2014 under these frameworks, where Israel, you, you know, uses this technology of force protection and inverts, inverts an, an equation that privileges the lives of a belligerent civilians above the lives of its soldiers, privileges the lives of enemy civilians above the lives of its soldiers. Instead, what Israel says is now that enemy civilians, the lives of enemy civilians are worth less than its soldiers. Now this is very radical, very, very radical, but these are the seeds that Israel has been planting. And that's what we see culminating right now in, in these propositions on power targets and the targeting of residences with a single, you know, suspected Hamas or Islamic Jihad operative, right? We also saw this sanctioned by Israel's high court when it rules in um, the public committee against torture in Israel versus the government of Israel that direct participants in hostilities or civilians who pick up arms for a short amount of time are still legitimate targets even when they lay down their arms because they continue to have a continuous combat function. That is precisely what is in number four that basically says that even an operative sleeping and incapacitated and posing no risk becomes a legitimate target in their home with their family and that threatens the entire neighborhood because not only are they legitimate targets during this time, but that the civilians around them aren't recognized as such. Regarding number three, power targets. Here we, we should understand that what Israel is telling us is that it can target civilians in order to achieve a military advantage, to change the calculus of Hamas, for example. In any other framework, this is terrorism. But Israel is suggesting for us that this is not, this is called power targets. And we should be very wary of this because we've seen Israel do this in the past where it changed what we known, what we have known as extrajudicial, extrajudicial assassination 
and reframe that as something known as targeted killing, right? And so here we're seeing a similar proposition to make terrorism acceptable, explicitly acceptable under the name of power target. And the policy of targeting these residential buildings was actually what we saw at the end of the, the um, campaign in 2021, where Palestinians described that campaign as the war of towers. This is when we saw the um, Al Jala Tower that was housing Al Jazeera and housing AFP and AP media targeted. Now in that incident, Ziad, in, in 2021, Israel actually privileged allowing Palestinians to, to evacuate the buildings, right? What we're seeing in this situation is not even that. There is no opportunity to properly evacuate. And whereas we saw nine buildings targeted um, by the end of the campaign in 2021, in the first weeks of this campaign, um, of this genocide, um, as recorded by Plus 972, Israel had already targeted 1,500 such buildings. So how is it, you know, it's really, I, I, I what you said, right, how is it, that it's so important to pay attention to these details. But oftentimes as we get into them, what we lose is the broader picture of what Israel is doing, which is to, to, to ethnically cleanse um, Gaza of its Palestinian people, to remove them in order to take the land without them in an ongoing Nakba. I really appreciate that kind of zooming out perspective and and drawing on on the really amazing investigative reporting of nine seven two and linking it to kind of, of broader pa patterns and and for me you know the 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 power targets and this is language that uh, uh, the author is you know translating and reporting from their sources within the Israeli um, establishment. Um, was really shocking and helps understand the, you know, over 300 educational facilities that have been damaged or destroyed, the over 45,000 housing units that have been totally destroyed, and the additional, you know, 150,000 to 200,000 housing units that have been damaged. Entire universities have been destroyed. Um, this is not even counting mosques and churches and bakeries. And let's remember that after the Israeli military seized control of the historic parliament building in northern Gaza, emptied it out and everything, they proceeded to bomb it uh, as a wanton act of destruction. Um, and, and, um, and I think we need to really, you know, keep up with the details, but also be able to zoom out to understand what the bigger picture is and, and what 972 is doing and what you're doing, I think is really helpful to understand that. Um, you've talked about ethnic cleansing, Noura, and I just wanna move to some of the other issues going on. Um, of course, Gaza, a population of about 2.3 million Palestinians, currently 1.8 million of them, meaning nearly 80% of the population uh, are recognized as internally displaced persons. Um, and the distribution of internally displaced persons is not just from northern Gaza, of course, it's from central Gaza, it's from southern Gaza. Um, so it's really important to understand this as a structural feature of what Israel is doing in its military onslaught. 
um, due to the overcrowding and poor sanitary conditions at many shelters in the South, there have been significant increases in some communicable diseases and conditions such as diarrhea, acute respiratory infections, skin infections, and hygiene-related conditions like lice. There are also initial reports of disease outbreaks, including hepatitis, right? And these are reports happening after a seven-day truce. Um, on December 1st, uh, the Israeli military published an online detailed map of the Gaza Strip, dividing it into hundreds of smaller units. Reportedly, the map is intended to facilitate, uh, uh, according to Israeli uh, official statements, the evacuation of specific areas ahead of their targeting. Uh, of course, with no clear understanding of where people would evacuate to or if even the targets are supposedly legitimate. Just to give you a sense, on December 2nd, um, areas encompassing about 25% of the Gaza Strip were designated for evacuation by the Israeli military. I mean, this is just one of the most uh, uh, clear-cut uh, 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 you know, indications of the, the, the degree to which the Israeli military is really dividing up the Gaza Strip into you know, strategic zones, as it sees, and moving inch by inch uh, uh, to displace people. And we should be clear that during the truce, uh, Israeli forces prevented many Palestinians from returning to their you know, neighborhoods and their homes in parts that the Israeli military now occupies. There is no indication that evacuation is simply a matter of temporary relief while military operations take place, but is in fact almost a permanent condition in many of these places. Um, I'm wondering what you think about this map, uh, Noura, and how you'd respond to someone who says, well, at least now the Israeli military is, you know, being clear where it's going next. Of course, many of the bombings don't correspond to what Israel claims is its evacuation orders. Um, but when it does, what? how do we make sense of this? Um, yeah, it's really difficult because it's it's dystopian as Palestinians have told us, right? It's dystopian, somebody described it. So just to give a little bit more detail, the Gaza Strip has now been divided into 2,300 blocks, right? And most Palestinians are now concentrated in the South, which we should emphasize because of the forced removal of 400,000 Palestinians from the North and their displacement into the South, they are now highly, you know, a, highly dense, even more densely populating an 85 square mile area, right? And what Israel has taken to doing is to send SMS messages or text messages to residents in particular blocks, telling them to leave before they launch strikes. You, it's, you know, you can literally be in an area that suddenly the entire area is marked as removal and you're supposed to run somehow with no fuel to you know you know transport you in cars somehow with the level of of the sick and the immobilized and the children and the elderly to another area i mean this is on its face a way of whitewashing um horrific horrific war crimes while israel claims the mantle of being you know um a humane belligerent. But as Ocha has pointed out, 
that the messages from Israel don't even indicate where the recipients of those text messages should go. It's not like they're told to go to a shelter that will be protected. There is nowhere to go. One victim, Nadir Abu Warde, who fled Jabalia at the start of the war, um, said, quote, they told us Gaza City is a war zone. Now it's Khan Yunis. Yesterday they were saying evacuate the east of Khan Yunis. Today they say evacuate the west. And what we're seeing is a further push of all Palestinians to the Rafah border with Egypt and what many are, are, are very concerned will be the forceful imposition of this Sinai plan to remove Palestinians into Egypt, to force a humanitarian crisis whereby the only relief is if they pass through the Rafah crossing that Egypt will be under pressure to open. And if they pass through that Rafah crossing, to not be allowed re-entry. This is literally what we're seeing play out in real time. And I cannot emphasize enough a complicit media core that refuses to interrogate what is doesn't even need a tremendous amount of investigation given the testimony that's being revealed, given the maps that Israel has, has given uh, us, given what Ocha is telling us, given what survivors are telling us that there is no safe quarter for Palestinians. This is not a military campaign. This is not a military campaign. This is clearly an ethnic cleansing campaign. And I think one of the things that the, the media core and especially the US media core has, has failed to do is to connect exactly what you're talking about with the very public and transparent statements and leaks coming out of Israeli officialdom about the desire to ethnically cleanse, to force the conditions for what's called voluntary transfer, um, to thinning out the population. I mean, the 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 statements are are all there, and it's uh, uh, quite mind-boggling. Uh, and unfortunately, I suspect we'll see what we've seen with some of the other things that we have been frustrated have not been given proper attention. Is that only the day after will these issues be given their proper uh, attention? Only when it's too late, when it's an afterthought, um, as if we are not. Uh, uh, pointing to it right now as if people on the ground in Palestine are not addressing this now and trying to bring it to a stop. Um, I want to just switch briefly, Noura, um, to the kind of broader siege that um, uh, the Gaza Strip has been put under. Of course, listeners might remember that as of October 11th, Gaza has been under an electricity blackout after the Israelis cut off the electricity supply and fuel reserves for Gaza sole power plant uh, depleted. Um, you know, the importation of fuel during the truce was a major uh, negotiation point. Um, but we are suspecting that the situation has returned to what it was before the truce, which is not allowing any fuel to enter the Gaza Strip. Um, I want to highlight that four hospitals in northern Gaza are partially operating and administering patients. Um, with only limited services, um, two other hospitals uh, are providing things like dialysis services for kidney patients, but none of the hospitals in northern Gaza have a surgery capacity. 
just to understand mm. what it means when we say there are only four hospitals partially operating. The remaining 12 hospitals in the rest of the Gaza Strip are also partially functioning with the bed capacity across the Gaza Strip having declined from 35,000, uh, sorry, 3,500 prior to the war to 1,400 presently amid you know, the destruction, but also the surge in, in, in what's happening. And I wanna hear focus on the question that you brought up about the premature babies, um, you know, uh, uh, in part because I think it shows the fact that no one is really considered a civilian in the Gaza Strip as far as the Israeli military command is concerned. I also think, you know, that that you you know, given the outlandish and uh, uh, proven falsehoods of forty babies being uh, uh, decapitated on October seventh, and the outcry that that propaganda and fake news created, we don't even see one tenth of the attention or the outrage by. Uh, um, you know, Jake Tapper or whoever else at CNN or any other media outlets about the premature babies in Gaza that have been killed. And I will say they have not died. They have been killed as a result and through the Israeli siege. So as some people might remember in Al-Shifa Hospital, um, five premature babies uh, uh, died um, before uh, everyone was uh, evacuated or the other babies were evacuated on November 19th after the besiegement uh, of Al-Shifa Hospital. Um, uh, uh, and uh, these evacuated babies that did survive beyond the fives continue to be fighting serious infections uh, 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 in, uh, in various ways. We also know that on November 9th, Israeli airstrikes hit Al-Nasr Medical Center in Gaza City, cutting off the neonatal intensive care unit's oxygen supply. The attack and repeated Israeli warnings and promises to eventually evacuate the necessary uh, uh, wounded or injured or sick, including the babies, the next day forced the staff to leave behind uh, 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 babies that could not be transported uh, uh, as part of the initial evacuation. On November 28th, uh, uh, nearly 20 days uh, uh, after and during the truce, doctors were able to return and found five babies dead with their corpses decomposing. Um, these two cases of uh, premature babies in um, Al-Shifa Hospital and al Nasser Medical Center in the Gaza Strip, I think really bring home the fact both of the total disregard for civilian lives uh, and attack on civilians by the Israeli onslaught, whether it's the siege, whether it's the aerial bombardment, whether it's the ground invasion by the Israeli military and the, the callous disregard of genuine reporting on these situations by the the um, uh, uh, media core, and especially that in the United States. You talked briefly about forcing people to Rafah and trying to force the situation for a transfer uh, across and, and the implementation of the Sinai plan. Uh, I, I want to say that, uh, um, you know, in the days since the truce has collapsed, uh, the, the Rafah border was open to 880 foreign nationals and dual citizens, as well as 13 injured people and their 10 companions were evacuated. Um, the, 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 the continued complete control 
of the movement of Palestinians, both within the Gaza Strip and outside and inside into the Gaza Strip, remains a feature of how Israel is continuously in total control. Um, I want to end uh, uh, or, or switch briefly, uh, Noura, to talk a little bit about the International Criminal Court, um, because that has been a major headline. And I think switching to that from the, the case of the babies in Al-Shifa and Al-Nasr Medical Center uh, and, and the kind of strategies you've been talking about makes sense. Um, we know uh, that... Um, uh, 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 the International Criminal Court prosecutor Karim Khan uh, was uh, in uh, uh, Israel-Palestine uh, this past weekend um, at the invitation of supposedly families representing victims of uh, the Hamas attack on October 7th. Um, we know that uh, he uh, later uh, proceeded to the West Bank uh, and um, was effectively boycotted by a number of Palestinian human rights organizations, despite his meeting with uh, uh, Palestinian Authority President uh, Mahmoud Abbas. I was wondering if you can help us make sense of this, Noura, because I know you were part of the larger effort by uh, Al-Haq and a number of other Palestinian human rights organizations to actually file an official complaint with the International Criminal Court. Um, I know that we, we, we've been calling for kind of international accountability of Israeli military uh, 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 policies, both after October 7th and before. Um, but yet here is the ICC prosecutor Karim Khan, um, you know, being boycotted for what seems to be very important reasons. But I wonder if you can help us understand, you know, what is the problematics of what Karim Khan is doing and, and the ICC? And what does this tell us about the, the limited options for the ICC as a, 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 an appropriate venue? I think um, we really need to understand first and foremost that even without um, the question of Palestine at the ICC, that a number of race scholars, that a number of TWAIL scholars, international law scholars, international criminal law scholars have highlighted for us, right, as Kamari Maxine Clark does most pointedly, right, in the way that the Rome Statute, which establishes the ICC, drafted in 1998, establishes it in 2002, enshrines white supremacy, right? Enshrines uh, the place, the, the, the supremacist place of European and former colonial powers. It does so in the, in, you know, even how far back the, the uh, criminal court only goes as far back as the establishment of the treaty itself. So we can't address anything before 1998 the 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 things that the significant the core crimes of you know war crimes crimes against humanity aggression um genocide do not include never name colonialism and then the procedures themselves the procedures themselves like article 17 on complementarity within the rome statute privilege a national court to prosecute it's, you know, it gives it the right of first jurisdiction to prosecute its own accused. And only if they are unable and unwilling, does the ICC have that jurisdiction and so on and so forth. So that all of this culminates in the outcome we see today, which is that since its establishment, the ICC has only 
prosecuted, right, with very limited exception, like Slobodan Milosevic and now Vladimir Putin, African and Arab uh, accused and heads of state. And so this is the context that we're in. And so we knew from the beginning and have been saying that the ICC itself will not be a venue that we should place, you know, any amount of faith in, let alone a tremendous amount of faith, because based on, on what we know and based on their attention to detail, that it would be more likely to prosecute Hamas first in what it considers less contentious cases than it would any Israeli official. And that's precisely what is happening. Now this becomes even more infuriating and exacerbating um, because Palestinians first approached the ICC to become a member in 2009 under the prosecutor then Moreno Ocampo who rejects it and says, well, Palestinians have no jurisdiction. Now fast forward, um, Palestine, Palestine becomes recognized as a state by the General Assembly, even though it's not a state member because it doesn't have it's uh, the U.S. You know, impedes that opportunity at the Security Council. But by 2012, there's really no, you know, there there is no uh, kind of legal controversy over whether Palestine is a state and has the right to accede to the Rome Statute. So we see them do so in 2015. It takes another six years after that, so a total of 12 years since Palestine wanted to accede to the Rome Statute in 2009 before. Um, the ICC's jurisdiction is recognized and before an investigation is opened in 2021. Now, since this investigation has been opened, Palestinians have appealed numerous times to the ICC prosecutor Khan, who's elected as prosecutor, what, seven days after the recognition of this jurisdiction in 2021, but has appealed to Khan multiple times to, you know, visit to increase resources. What we understand is not only did Khan not visit, and even earlier this year, 35 Palestinian organizations urged Khan to visit in February 2023 in light of a heightening use of force against Palestinians in the West Bank. This year has been the most deadly, as we've been told since the beginning of the year, since um, the, the 2005, in the years of the second Palestinian Intifada, Right. And Khan has refused those appeals. We also know that only about one million euros have been allocated to the Palestine file since 2023, which has been we've been told multiple times that this pales in comparison to the other cases that are open and is under resourced. More than that, we also know the disparity in the way that uh, that Khan responded to the the, you know, war crimes. Um, in uh, committed by Russia or alleged war crimes committed by Russia and its occupation of Ukraine, specifically the kidnapping and transfer of Ukrainian children to Russia, Khan responded within a week and issued an arrest warrant. And yet here we have, right, an open investigation since 2021, appeals by Palestinian organizations, you know, increasing appeals, especially in 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 February of 2023, under resourced, right? The most well documented genocide that we've known, and Khan has done very little besides visit the Rafah crossing and and say using you know he's he's the prosecutor, but he's acting like a diplomat. He is a prosecutor. He's meant to be 
disdained by all party in his pursuit of accountability. And yet he continues to move with the trappings of a diplomat of trying to appeal all, to all sides, but gone even further and, and completely, completely disregarding uh, Palestinians as he's now responded to an invitation by the survivors of the October 7th um, operation and visited those survivors in Israel. Not only that, he has regarded them as um, that they're, that in his estimation that there's reason to believe that Hamas committed war crimes. He took a picture overlooking occupied East Jerusalem. I mean, we're talking about basic international law. Security Council Resolution 478 that urges all parties to rebuke any, you know, Israeli attempt at an an annexing Jerusalem. He took it meter, that picture was meters away from illegal settlements, which are not controversial at all. Their illegality is not controversial at all. And under it was a caption under Khan that said visiting Israel. So yes, Palestinian rights organizations are furious at this blatant double standard under-resourced, you know, this is um, justice delayed as justice denied, complicity in 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 these pictures, uh, double standard uh, in the response to Russia and the response to Israel. And now on top of all of it, the ability to visit, um, you know, the people, uh, the survivors from October 7th, but yet no visit or conversation or, or an open channel with any Palestinians from Gaza and their survive and those who have survived the you know annihilation of their families, families that have been wiped out from the population registry. Um, and so next week is the assembly of states, of state parties at the UN. And there is a call not, you know, to urge the ASP and those who are attending to impose upon Khan the imperative to issue arrest warrants to those that we have named. You mentioned I'm part of one petition to the ICC, but there have been several, including by reporters without borders, who have indicated the number of the reporters who have been killed. I think now it's um, over 54 reporters killed during their time of work. Um, And rights groups have said issuing arrest warrants will actually serve as a deterrent function. Arrest warrants for um, Netanyahu, Gallant, um, Herzog, um, an alien to to basically as a as a as a as a warning as a deterrent, and, and the prosecutor refuses to do any of that. So this is why, as you indicated, rights groups refuse to meet with him. They want him out. They want him removed for a failure um, to uphold the mandate of the ICC and the Rome Statute. <laughs> Thank you, Ziad Al-Nura. Today's episode was hosted and produced by myself, Bassam Haddad. It was written and presented by Ziad Abulish and Noura Aliqat. Research for this program was conducted by Anas Al-Khatib, Mais Al-Alami, Sara Al-Yahya, Ranim Ayad, Ala Atiyah Mitwalli, and Aryan Nushi.